Hey everybody, it's Christina Caramo and welcome to It's Solid Food. So ideas have consequences. Think about that. That's something we don't think about. If I told you that you were one big accident versus telling you that you were designed for a purpose, how does that impact a person? If I tell you just blind chance and humans just thrive for just no reason, then life itself has no reason and no meaning and we're just here. But if I told you you were put here for a reason, for a purpose, that gives you determination. That gives you drive. It gives you hope. It drastically changes things. And that's what we'll talk about. I'm Christina Caramo, and now it's time for some solid food. Welcome to It's Solid Food, where we discuss all things in Christian apologetics, culture, and politics. So today, we're going to talk a little bit of apologetics, and also we're going to talk about culture, and maybe if time for it, politics. Because they really all three meld in with this topic, which is, who made us? So I'm going to do a little book review, which I am really excited about. Melissa, Melissa Kane Travis's book, Science in the Mind of, a Make, of the Maker. Really great book that talks about the evidence that, that exists that we can infer from evidence that we were intelligently designed. Now, here's the thing, folks. We send our kids to school and we tell them to trust their teacher. And at some point, in our educational experience, we encounter evolution. Now, how does this impact the view we have on ourselves? Kids are taught that just some things happen and somehow we evolve. And humans used to be monkeys and humans used to be this and that. And guess what? You're related to a banana. You don't have that much genetic difference between you and a banana. You know, they hear all these crazy things. So I have no more value than a banana. We just evolved over time just for some reason and no reason. And that's just it. And that's why we're here. Well, when you think about it, that really makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. None. It doesn't. It really goes to the heart of why am I here versus if we tell kids that God made you, you're special, you're here for a reason. That really helps carry a person through life because in those dark moments of life, when you feel like there's no hope, you know that God put me here for a reason versus you're just here because of blind chance and randomness and natural selection. It's like a, it's like a lottery pick. So that is why I'm tapping into this book for today's episode just to kind of help with this topic because this book to me is a really great book really really great good book again it's called science in the mind of the maker by melissa k travis and it's an easy read so if you're not a person who's like really into science if that isn't a subject that just really fascinates you and you're not interested in getting deep into mathematic theory then this probably is the best book for you it is because it, it it's really on a like a readable level so a couple of topics I'm going to touch on to help kind of catapult my point that it has their social consequences and personal consequences 
that exists when we teach people that they are just here from random chance, this book will really help. So the two main topics I'm going to talk about is intelligent design and Darwinian evolution. But before we get to intelligent design and Darwinian evolution, there's a couple of concepts I need to talk about first. So the first is materialism. So materialism is this idea that the material or the physical world is the only true substance that exists. Now myself, I subscribe to an idea that is called substance dualism. So substance dualism acknowledges that there's uh, multiple types of substance, meaning there's physical substance, physical material, and there is immaterial substance. So you have material substance and immaterial substance. Just a materialist believes that there's only the physical world. That's all there is. That's something like atheists. Okay, so atheists believe there is no God. There's just, there's nothing. Now, technically, atheists could be a substance dualist. They could believe that there is no God, but that there's an immaterial world. Technically, I guess they could be, but you get the point of what I'm trying to say. So how does that flesh out into science? So when you're dealing with a person who has a materialistic worldview, they lead toward believing that our existence is a result of blind chance and just random mutation. That means it just exists because it just did exist. Whereas the person who's a substance dualist, they're more likely to believe that there is an intelligent creator behind our existence, that there's an intelligent being who made us. That's where we get into intelligent design. Now, I'm going to separate the topics of intelligent design and evolution for this reason. There are people who what we call theistic evolutionists. So there are people who we call, excuse me, theistic evolutionists. And so it's really important that I um, discuss these things in the very beginnings, just for the sake of clarity. So there are people who are called theistic evolutionists. So they're not materialists, but they believe in God, but they believe that God designed the world through evolutionary means, okay? So those are two separate things, and I will get to why, I mean, I'm getting to why it's important now, so just so you can understand. So when I use the term evolution, I'm using it in the term of Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution is an atheistic theory. It believes that just random mutation and blind chance is what created human beings, okay? There are very few theistic evolutionists. However, theistic evolutionists do believe in intelligent design. So just thought I would mention that in the beginning. Now, when we get into uh, intelligent design, it is basically a scientific theory that, that posits that we can infer from evidence that we were intelligently designed. So, for example, this mouse here for my computer. Now, with this mouse from my computer, I know that um, somebody had to make it. It didn't just materialize on its own. Someone had to design it. Someone had to put it together. Someone had to ship it. It was much, it was all people behind, not to say they didn't use machine, but ultimately it was people behind the whole process. It was some personal being a personal agent so when it comes to the universe it is logical for us to infer that there is a personal agent behind now who god is is a separate question this deals with the what not the who 
the who gets into theology. So that's where I would get into Christian theology. Just like there's Muslims. Muslims also believe in intelligent design. Uh, um, all kind of people, and no matter what your religious beliefs are, as long as you believe in a God of some kind, then you are a theist. So that means you're going to more likely than not lean on intelligent design. So one of the important beginnings of intelligent design is that we know that our universe didn't always exist. We know it came into existence at some point. So that means that something eternal had to pre-exist our universe. Now, why did it have to be something eternal that pre-exists our universe? Because we live in what's called linear time. There's always these subsequent moments. So it's like one, two, three. As, we, as I'm sitting here doing this episode, time is passing, right? It starts and then it passes forward. However, if our universe always pre-existed, we could never arrive at this moment. Now, what do I mean by that? There can't be infinite infinity going backwards, okay? Because you would never get to zero. You have to have a starting point, okay? Our universe came into existence. Logically, it makes sense because we know our universe didn't always exist. So there has to be something eternal that doesn't have a beginning. Because again, if I go back in time, right? Just think about, you think of a number line, right? And a number line is just going backwards. Well, for you to arrive at zero or to arrive at, say, two, you have to start back here and get to two. You see what I'm saying? You have to start back here and get to two. But if the back here has no beginning, then you can't get to two. I hope that makes sense. So what I'm saying is that our universe had to have a beginning. We know from the Big Bang Theory that it does. So since we know that our universe came into existence, and this is where we get into the Kalam cosmological argument. So since our universe came into existence, since our, well, let me back up. Anything that, anything that begins to exist has a cause. And since our universe began to exist, our universe had to have a cause. But the cause of our universe has to be eternal. And it means it had no beginning because otherwise it would never get to that point. It, it, it just linear time functions in a way that it's always progressing forward. And so since it's always progressing forward, it had to have a starting point. So whatever existed before our universe had to have no starting point. No, otherwise, we wouldn't get to this moment. So that means that there's something that's pre-existent, something eternal that exists outside of our universe. So with that being said, why would I think that pre-existent eternal thing, if you will, lacks a mind? Why would I think that it lacks a mind? There's no good reason for me to think that it lacks a mind because we have a mind. We're intelligent beings. So you mean to tell me a blind force? What force are you talking about? So just some blind random force exists that has the capability of in one explosion creating a universe that is so perfectly designed that it makes life on earth possible there's something called the goldilocks theory you know like the goldilocks story like oh too hot too cold just right so we are in the just right position on planet earth to make life possible 
In addition to the fact, we are also, our entire universe is balanced on a level of precision that is unbelievable. And I'm supposed to think this is all one big accident. If I told you that this mouse was just an accident and it just magically appeared, nobody made it, it just formed itself, you would think that I had lost my mind. However, it is logical to think that the entire universe in all of its majesty wasn't designed. See, one of the reasons why I know this mouse is designed because it's something called specified complexity. So when you, that's one of the markers we look for for design. So like, for example, if I go outside and I see a weed growing up. Now, could someone have planted the weed there? Yes. However, the weed growing up, it doesn't appear as though someone purposely placed it there. It appears that someone, someone, um, it appears that it just grew on its own. Now, of course, there's intelligence design behind the existence of the weed, but I won't get into that. That's getting in the weeds. But nevertheless, if you saw a fence around this weed, then you would logically conclude that somebody put it there because it's something that's complex that required someone doing something and it's very specific. It's complex and specific, just like you think about because someone, it was placed there. So it wasn't just a gate there. So if you just have a piece of fence that's just like laying there on the side, it could have blown there. But the fact that it's placed around this weed you know someone had to put it there because it's very specific in its design and it's complex because it's put in a certain way. It had to take some intelligence and skill. So anything that's specific and requiring of skill to be complete, we know that an intelligent mind was behind it. So if we're going to posit that from a fence being placed around a weed, why would we come to that same conclusion when thinking about our universe? I'm supposed to believe instead that it was just blind chance and random circumstance. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So just to give you guys uh, an idea about not just specified complexity, but let me move on to the concept of fine tuning. So with fine tuning, and, and, and Travis discusses this in her book. So I'm, I'm just using her book as a point of reference. And this is a really great book. And you can learn all this stuff here. And it just really helps you have a, a richer view of the world and really appreciate something we call natural theology. And it really gets into the danger of a materialist worldview. But I'll get to that. Let me not get ahead of myself. So there's another concept of what we call fine tuning of how refined and how perfectly placed everything is. And this is slightly different from specified complexity because specified complexity is just that talks about the markers that, that help us see design. That can apply to a cake. It can apply to a planet. It's just a lots of different things. Now, it just it just we know from certain markers, we can tell when something's been designed or if something just happened randomly. And then there's markers within our universe because of the way how fine tuned it is that we can tell it was designed. So we can tell by the fine tuning because it's very complex and very specific 
we can tell that the universe is designed. So when we think of the theory of fine tuning, it really gets into how precise everything in our universe is and how that fine tuning or that precision is necessary for the universe to sustain itself. Um, when I say sustain itself, of course, God has divine providence over everything, but I, you understand what I'm saying. Because our universe is really ruled by numbers. And that's how you even have people in the past that look like mass is like a religion because everything is ruled by numbers. For our universe to be this fine-tuned, it's logical to think that there's someone who fine-tuned it. If you want any indication about how fine-tuned our universe really is to being sustainable and not collapsing on itself or just blowing out, like just flow, because our universe is expanding, but it's expanding at a controlled rate. Otherwise, it just expands like bam, and everything just collapsed, and it just be over with. There would be no life. In Travis's book, she quotes and is talking about how the how how precise everything is. She wants to give you she's giving like a number just so you can get an idea of how precise our universe is. And okay, so if the universe, it, it okay, in what ways would the universe be universe be different if gravity? She's talking about the the gravitational constant or G. It says G, but she's talking about the gravitational constant in our, in, in our universe. Had a slightly different value. So we're just talking about the gravitational constant. Robin Collins, a contemporary expert on fine-tuning, says that if G, again, it's the gravitational constant, were smaller or larger by an unimaginable tiny fraction, only one part, one part, in 10 to the 60th power, the universe would either explode too quickly for stars to form or collapse back on itself too quickly for life to evolve. Now, if you cannot fathom a number like 10 to the 60th power, again, we're talking about one part of 10 to the 60th power. I heard someone say once, just to pause on her quote, but I heard someone say once that it is more likely for a tornado to go through a junkyard and create a jumbo jet than it is for our universe to just form by itself. And we all know it's highly unlikely for a tornado to go through a junkyard and form a jumbo jet. Just saying. But nevertheless, she says, a point of comparison. Okay, so if you cannot fathom a number like 10 to the, 10 to the 60th power, a point of comparison would be the estimated number of subatomic particles in the entire known universe roughly 10 to the 80th power. So again, that precision is one part in 10 to the 60th power. And so just so you can get an idea of how big of a number 10 to the 60th power is, there are roughly 10 to the 80th power number of subatomic particles in our entire known universe. Now, the entire known universe is 92 billion light years. Now, if you want an idea of how big one light year is, one light year is 5.9 trillion miles. So 5.9 trillion times 5.9 billion is the exact number roughly of 10 to the 80th power. The level of precision that was necessary for our universe to form and sustain itself it's one part in 10 to the 60th power. So if it was off 
by just that amount, we would all die. And the universe just simply wouldn't exist. I'm supposed to believe that that level of precision and coordination just happened by accident. Even the temperature of the stars matter. The temperature of the stars matter. The placement of the planets matter. So all of our planets have a special purpose on Earth. Now, I'm not going to get into that. I can't remember all of them all. I have to study it again. Like you read something, it's like, oh, that's really cool. And you got to read it again. Because like one planet I could think of in particular is like Jupiter that absorbs asteroids to help them not hit Earth. So, because they have, it has such a strong, it's a gas giant and it has such a strong atmosphere. So, um, the thing about it is, is that the whole universe is designed in a way to make life necessary on Earth. Even our ability to observe, observe the universe, the way Earth is perfectly positioned helps us observe the universe. Now, us being able to observe the universe really doesn't change life on Earth very much. I'm not saying maybe for certain growing things and maybe like navigational realities, but just to be able to observe so deep into space, there's no reason we need that. So those are types of things that really you can't explain to me why they're here other than if you're pointing to God that he gave us the capability to study his majesty on some level. So those are some of the points where we get into intelligent design, but that also bleeds over into the discussion of evolution. Now, again, some theistic evolutionists would rebut this because they do believe in God, but ultimately evolution just falls flat on where are the transitional species. What I mean by that are like, okay, so if you're saying we evolved from all these different species, where where are the transitional species? And then two, show me examples in nature where mutation leads to a better off species. When we think of a mutation, it leads to some type of deficiency. This isn't the X-Men. You know, where these are, they have super, super powers. So no, when we think of, when we think of mutation, it leaves a problem. And then show me something where it's, um, where it's actual a mutation into a new species that's alive right now. And then also too, a lot of these different creatures that they say are like trans, like other humanoids, they're, a lot of these are artist rendition. Um, they've also been caught like putting different animal bones together and then, too, a lot of these drawings, they don't even have a full skeleton. They have partial skeletons or partial skulls. This could have been simply a human with a genetic defect. I mean, God bless these people, but we've seen pictures of people with severe genetic defects. Think of the elephant man. Are we going to say that if, if, if his skull would have existed 10,000 years or four or 5,000 years ago, would you sit here and say that that's another human species? I mean, that could simply be a person with a deformity. So, again, it really gets into a lot of weeds that I won't get into today, but Evolution just falls flat on its face for so many different levels, even from a theistic standpoint. And then there's theological problems, especially for a Christian, because then you're starting to deny parts of the Bible. Then we get into the fall of man. It gets off into some whole other topics. Like then you're then this gets into has all types of theological implications. But I won't get off into that just now. But just talking about the idea that we were intelligently designed. What about DNA? Now, the thing about DNA, DNA is basically our language. It's like the language for life. 
So when you think of like a computer, we know you have to code a computer to be able for it to function a certain way. Well, human beings are also coded, if you will, we're coded with our DNA that tells our body what to do. And so the way DNA works is that in your nucleus is your DNA. And then the DNA, basically our RNA is a messenger. So it takes, it copies the code from the DNA and then leaves out the nucleus to grab amino acids to code new proteins. So think about it. Here are a couple of problems. When, when this is where it gets into evolution because now we're dealing with biology. When it comes to coding of proteins or coding um, or, or making um, or making new proteins, you need the RNA. Well, when you think about the origins of life, there is no evidence that RNA spontaneously generates. You need RNA. Now they can say, oh, and, and this is Darwin's theory about evolution, that, oh, there was this primordial soup. Um, there was this back primordial bacteria that existed. And like, this is ridiculous. So, okay, so let's say it's a primordial soup. How did the primordial soup turn into life? Where you're going to need RNA to code and create new amino acids. Take these amino acids. Where do the amino acids come from? You know what I'm saying? Where did the information come from in the DNA? Information comes from a mind. That's that's the nature of information. Information necessarily comes from a mind. So where did all this come from? There's no evidence that RNA can spontaneously spontaneously manifest because remember you can have dna but unless there is rna there to take the information from the dna and grab amino acids and cold proteins then you have no life you you have no life so because it's impossible you need protein to make life so it, it just makes no because there's no evidence and you're and, you, and if you say well just because we don't know how it happened yet that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Well, there could be monkeys hopping on planets right now. There could be monkeys in space hopping on from planet to planet with little jetpacks on. Now, even though you can't prove that these monkeys in space don't exist, but you have no logical reason to think they do exist because there's no evidence. So just because I can't disprove something, that doesn't mean that it exists and it's logical to think it exists because you can't disprove it. And since you can't disprove, since you can't, since I can't disprove a bacterial primordial soup, that means I should believe it exists and it's the origins of DNA. It makes no sense. And then, and then to make matters worse, even scientists in laboratories, they try to recreate evolution and say, look, We've recreated evolution. Well, wait a minute. Pause. My theistic evolution friend would appreciate this line, but there's still intelligence in a lab. You used intelligence to disprove intelligence? That makes no sense. You had to have people in a lab with a with a, with a plan, with with a theory, with test subjects. You had to coordinate this entire process. So you're going to use human beings to coordinate in a process to prove that life spontaneously generates and that life can spontaneously generate 
from a primordial soup. In order for you to prove your theory, you're going to have to point to something in nature that spontaneously generates. And you're going to have to point to something in nature that the necessary information just magically forms. And if you press these people further, like, well, where did the material come from that is able to create life? Some will even push something called panspermia, which means that there's something in space that seeded planet Earth. Some kind of alien life. So then is the alien life God? I mean, it just really gets into the weeds of foolishness. How much, lot, much more logical is it that there is a personal being out there who made us? Who made the whole thing? That makes way more sense. There is a personal being who out there who is beyond space, beyond time, who's super powerful, who's personal, who made us to just blind chance. And then some of the arguments the evolutionists use, which I one of my favorite arguments is junk DNA. Now, for years, there are scientists who will say things like, Oh, well, you know, certain organs on the human body. Oh, well, that's just what we call a vestigial structure. That there's something humans don't need anymore, like your tonsils. Okay, I think about my poor dad. When he was a little kid, he had his tonsils removed. And they told me, oh, you don't need your tonsils, a tonsillectomy or whatever it's called. It's no problem. He coughs so bad. My poor dad, one thing goes wrong in his, goes wrong in his throat. He's just coughing, just coughing up a storm. Poor guy. So, you know, do not sit here and tell me that, I mean, he's fine, he's healthy, but still it gives him problems sometimes. And it's scary sometimes when he gets the coffin. So, so don't sit here and tell me that just because you as a human do not understand what something does, that it's useless. That, that just reveals human arrogance. Or think about your appendix. Appendix is like a, it has it's like a reservoir for bile, which is necessary for digesting your food. And you're going to sit here and tell me that your appendix is useless? They used to tell people that. Now, people can survive without it. But don't sit and say that it's useless just because you don't know what it's useful for. And that's ultimately the problem. And another point of reference that the evolutionists love to point to to prove evolution is something called junk DNA. So they'll basically say that... Um, 95% of the human genome is junk and unuseless. Again, just because you don't know what it's for does not mean that it's useless. You just don't know. I mean, how, how many times throughout history have we seen scientists change their minds? And it's not that it's wrong because they change their mind. It's because the way theories work is they build on themselves. But to say that part of the human genome is totally useless simply because you don't know what it's for is ridiculous. So in Travis's book, she quotes a biologist named um, Kenneth Leonard, Kenneth Miller, excuse me. And, and he said, if DNA of a human being or any other organism resembles a carefully constructed computer program with nearly arranged and logically structured modules, each written to fulfill a specific function and evidence of intelligent, intelligent design would be overwhelming. In fact, the genome resembles nothing so much as a hodgepodge and commands that has been cobbled together by millions of years of trial and error against the relentless test of survival. It works, and it works brilliantly, not because of intelligent design, but because of a great blind power of natural selection to innovate, test, and discard 
what fails in favor of what succeeds. Now, here are several popular quotes. Number one, it goes back to this arrogance, this hubris that this man clearly possesses. Just because you don't know why something is the way it is, it doesn't mean that it has no purpose. That's so arrogant. Number two, he even uses personal language, language that we ascribe to intelligence to describe blind blind power, blind natural selection. He says, but because of the great blind power of natural selection to innovate. So let's pause for a minute. So you mean to tell me that non-intelligent forces innovate? Show me an example of that in nature. See, in order for us to believe or gravitate to a scientific theory or to even form a theory, we have to draw upon something we know. Like an, imagine a color that doesn't exist. Think about it. Imagine a color that doesn't exist. You can't do it. Like I actually tried. And, I, and it, it wasn't like I had been on something either. You know, we would laugh about high people jokes. No, literally I sat and thought about, can I think of a color that doesn't exist? This was a while ago, but still. And you think about it, you can't. Because in order to think of something, you have to draw on something that doesn't exist. Even think of a unicorn. Just like a cross between a horse and a narwhal. So you still had to draw on something that does exist in order to create something that doesn't exist. So even if I were to think about a new color, it would just be a variation of a pre-existing color. So with that being said, Natural selection has to innovate. Innovate on what? What is it innovating on? That only comes from intelligence. Then to test. So you mean to tell me that blind objects? And then pause this for one second. The materialist has serious problems. Because as I talked about earlier, I'm a substance dualist. I believe that there are material and immaterial substances. The materialist only believes that the only substance that exists is material. So then what exactly it's natural selection. It has to be a material. Because if you say that it's not a material, but you only believe material things exist. So since immaterial things do not exist, then natural selection has to be a material thing. So what is it? Again, the logical conclusions of their arguments is really fall flat. Then he says to test and discard what fails in favor of what succeeds. So that means that natural selection has to have discerning capabilities. So you mean to tell me this non-material in your materialist thing has discerning capabilities, but it doesn't have a mind. It doesn't add up. But then his whole point and a lot of the, 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 the pieces that they point to to try to prove this whole theory of junk DNA as being evidence of evolution because there's these basically discarded material that exists in the human genome is just evidence of the materialist evolutionist process. It's hogwash. So on, uh, on page 134 of the book, Travis states, the, uh, she talks about his landmark rep report. Um, so the landmark report that began shaking its foundation, it's talking about junk DNA, in 2012 by the ENCODE, which is the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements, research project whose mission it is to compile a database of all functional elements in the human genome. Initial data in the phase on one of their research, excuse me, yes, okay, let me back up. So whose mission is to compile a database of all functional elements in the human genome. Initial data in phase one of their research in 2007 
has suggested that much of what has been classified as junk might indeed have functional significance. Findings of the second phase of the project provided astounding confirmation. The ENCODE research team concluded that at least 80% of the genome has some kind of function. Now, the reason why a lot of these arrogant scientists called it junk was because it wasn't the genome they found didn't have protein coding capability. But that's all you know it can do. Just because I only know one function of DNA and RNA, that doesn't mean that these genomes, our genes don't have other functions. Just because you don't know it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Anyway, I've repeated that like six times. Moving on. So again, concluded that at least 80% of the genome has some kind of function. A shocking figure given previous su suppositions that, a non, that the non-protein coding regions, which make up approximately 98% of uh, the genome, are useless. So again, as science innovates, it, it, it science, it's the funny part is, is I was talking to my uncle once, and he teaches. And he was talking about, he works with, um, he has this one particular student, he works, he really works with kids who are like special needs. And he was telling me about one of his students was telling him about something he learned in science class. And I asked, I was talking to my uncle and he was like, and the more my students started telling me about this stuff, he's like, the more I kept thinking, my goodness, it just proves God to be true. Because the more we learn, the more complexity we learn about. Remember we talking about specified complexity, we learn about more complexity that exists in this life. Somebody had to be behind this all. This is way too detailed. And then some of the arguments that you think about with, with the evolutionists, because they're walking into the situation with the materialistic worldview. Like I, I remember one of my classes, our teacher was talking about how scientists were trying to guess state that, you know, humans are really no different than a banana, that we have so much um, material in common with plants and, and bananas and animals and all these different things, but we eat each other. If, if fruit and animals were, or vegetables and animals were of completely different genetic material than I am, I could not eat them. I couldn't. I would get sick because my body has to be able to assimilate. We eat to nourish our bodies. So since we eat to nourish our bodies, we have to nourish what we have. So it has to be a similar material to me so I, or I wouldn't be able to eat it. So that doesn't point to common ancestry. That points to a common designer. It, it doesn't make sense. So with that being said, with that all being said, folks, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to discuss what implications does this have in society? I'm Christina Caramo and you're listening to or watching It's Solid Food. Welcome back to It's Solid Food, where we discuss all things in Christian apologetics, culture, and politics. So we were just talking about the, the, the consequence of how um, materialism and evolution really uh, impact our culture. But we were just talking about the theories themselves and, and the evidence that we were intelligently designed. And there's so much more than that. I could do an entire episode on those topics, but I was just trying to keep it brief. And again, read Melissa Kane Travis's book, Science and Mind of the Maker. It's an excellent book. So what I will add to that, what I will add to that is how these ideas impact culture. And that's really important. We can infer what we call natural theology, meaning we can look and tell that somebody made us all. We can tell that someone is behind this entire thing. But when you remove or attempt to remove the creator from his creation, then it has no meaning. When I believe 
or I know that God made me. I have a purpose. All of us have been depressed in life because part of the human existence is sadness. We feel failure, regret, loss, pain, all kinds of things. But when I know that God made me for a purpose, for a reason, it moves me like nothing before. It makes me want to use this life for something powerful and important. Because I know that one day I will stand before God and will be judged for my life. And I want God to say, good job. Good job. But when you go through life and there is no God, you have a very, what we call an Epicurean view of the world. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's like do anything. And we can see hedonism has infected our culture on every level because that's the way we train our kids. So we train our kids in materialism and then are shocked when they develop this Epicurean view of tomorrow, live tomorrow, eat and drink. Because, I mean, eat and drink because tomorrow we die. It's just like do anything because tomorrow we're going to die. So we might as well just do anything now. Because there's no accountability. And there's no meaning to life but pleasure. So there's lots of problems that come from that. Lots of problems. If the only meaning to life is pleasure and my own personal satisfaction and survival, that means that any and everything I do, I'm totally justified. Let's say I was homeless, all right? I'm homeless and I was hungry. And I went, shot somebody in the face, took their house and their purse. I would go to jail. I can't really take somebody's house, but I would go to jail. However, in the materialist view, I'm not morally wrong. Now, the society may have said I'm wrong because people behaving like that is not conducive to a flourishing society. But on a moral level, I'm ultimately not wrong. And then with the materialist view, it leaves morality to be decided by the collective. Do we want morality to be decided by the collective? Because if we go through human history, there have been times where people thought all types of behaviors were permissible. It's the reason why we have a constitution. Because typically throughout human history, when someone did something bad, there was no law and order. It was the mob thinks you did something bad and the mob will kill you. We've learned through history that oftentimes people are innocent. That's not the way you have a civilized society. So we put these rules in place to, to have a, a healthier and better society. You know, for example, if you think of like in the Mayan culture, it was a, a, a particular ritual. Um, and I talked about this before in previous episodes. And I, don't, I, need, I need to get the details because oftentimes when I make an episode, I, I'm not like I don't have my words planned out. I have like what I want to talk about the topics, but I don't have every scenario I'm going to mention planned out, but it's a particular ritual where they would take a person and they would kill them and like cut their heart out. So they basically would cut a person's heart out when they were alive. And when it was like some type of human sacrifice. Now we hear that and think it's totally barbaric. But the reason why we think it's barbaric, because most of us have a theological worldview. We believe that there is somebody behind us who cares about this poor guy or lady who's having their heart ripped out of their chest. However, from a materialistic worldview, you ultimately can't think it's wrong because that culture has decided that's a permissible behavior. So ultimately, you can't think it's wrong. But many of us say, well, yeah, that's terrible. That's a person. But if from a materialist standpoint, that person has no more value than a peach.
or plum. It's just another type of material. It just to have it just happens to have some type of cognition behind it, and that's all. Does cognition equal value? I mean, it, again, it, it gets into the weeds of all these things. It's just like, it, no, human beings are special and unique. But according to scripture, I'm special and unique because I was made in the likeness and image of God. And so if we have no meaning, then we're not accountable to anybody. Do we really want a society where no one's accountable? Now, in America, for all its flaws, still in an interpersonal way, what I mean, not how governments and government institutions treated people. I'm just talking about within communities. I think of Thomas Sowell talking about growing up in Harlem in the 40s. And he was saying that growing up in the 40s and 1940s and 50s, he said, we could be outside at night. Nobody worried about being attacked or assaulted. We would sleep on a roof at night. Women could walk down the street. She didn't have to worry about getting raped. Now would somebody do that? Heck no. Well, one thing, we have removed God out of society. See, when you know that at the end of the day, you will be accountable to someone, you function different. Many of us do things, do the right thing, not because we feel like this is the right thing to do because we don't want to get caught. So if you take your average person, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, if you could steal this diamond, that's worth $20 million. For a lot of us, $20 million would change our life. $20 million, no one would know. Would you take it? Most people say, no, 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 that's wrong. You're lying. You would if no one knew your answer. Let's take it a step further. What if God didn't exist and it was just us? Would you take it? Because there's no accountability. Because that's our nature. Our nature is to do what we want to do. But since God exists, that changes things. It's like, okay, yeah, the person I stole it from may not know. But guess who's going to know? God's going to know. And that, my friend, is a problem. And he's going to know that I took this $10 million diamond that didn't belong to me. So it changes how we function in life. And in our society, because we take our kids. And we put them in school and we tell them to listen to the teacher. And then the teacher teaches them evolution. Guess what happens to that Christian child? I largely believe, I largely believe that one of the reasons why we're having this horrible exodus of young people leaving the faith has a lot to do with evolution. Because we teach them to believe what they teachers say. And the teachers provide this very, very seemingly convincing argument as to why, as to why, this is how the world really came into existence. Well, if you read the Bible, it tells a totally different story. So you're starting to chip away at the word of God. And even for people who believe in theistic evolution, it still has ramifications. Because now this gets into the fall of man. Because if I'm simply evolved from a monkey, then how can you say I was made in the likeness and image of God? At what point? At what step in the evolutionary process was I in the likeness and image of God? Then, so that not only messes up with human anthropology, but what about sin? How, how does that not impact the theory, not theory, the reality of human sin? If I evolved from a monkey, didn't, at what point did I become a human? 
What subsequent evolutionary species were other animals condemned to hell? The animals need salvation? I mean, it, 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 it's so many questions. But then from a young person's perspective, if Adam and Eve is just a fairy tale, the great flood is just a fairy tale. The parting of the Red Sea, the Exodus, is just a fairy tale. Is this Jesus rising from the dead? I've heard comments that are totally blasphemous calling Jesus a zombie. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead? And they call him a zombie. So you're planting seeds of doubt in the mind of your child when we do not combat the theory of evolution. Because it protects and encapsulates this entire materialistic worldview that precipitates the hedonistic society which we see. And we see it because people have been taught that there is no God. And that's really what's happening. Because also, like I said before, if there is no God, then what about morality? It's just about mob rule then. It's whatever the mob decides is right. And there's no sense of justice and right and wrong. Because in order for there to be laws and a sense of right and wrong, there has to be a lawgiver. And do we really want a society where the mob decides what the law is? That means might makes right. So if I walk up and just strong arm rob somebody, you ultimately can't say I'm wrong because might makes right. Because if you're going to say it's up to the interpretive community or that community to decide what's right and wrong, but ultimately, at what level does that start? Does it start, does that, when there's five people, when it's 20 people, 100 people? At what point does it determine when the group can decide? Why, why is it okay for it to be 10 or 20 people or 100 people in a group that can decide the rules but not one-on-one? Why can't I as an individual? And who sets that rule? What if I don't want to follow the group? What if I want to be my own person? So what if I don't want to follow the group? I want to be my own person and start robbing people and killing people. Why not? You can't say I'm morally wrong. So there has to be somebody that exists outside of all of humanity that established the rules and morality that we draw from in order to stabilize our society. In addition to the spiritual ramifications, this is where we get our I'm religious, but I'm not spiritual. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual people. People simply don't want accountability. It's another book I read. I forgot the guy's name, so I don't even want... I think I know who wrote it, but I don't even want to say it because I might say the wrong person. But he is a Christian who was writing a book about intelligent design. He was talking about... He gave a lecture at a science conference. And when he talked to some of the scientists afterwards, they... I want to say it's called Creator in the Cosmos by Norm Hughes. Oh, I want to say that so bad. Oh, my God. I'm pretty positive that was a book. But nevertheless... But I think it's Hugh Ross. I think it's Hugh Ross. I, I, I said Norm Hughes, but it's Hugh Ross. I'm pretty positive it's that book. But nevertheless, he was talking about, in like the appendix part of the book, that when he talked to people about why they rejected God, and this was, again, other scientists, and the people were saying things like um, church hurt. Um, they had been hurt by some Christians. And some of the people just straight up said, I want to be sexually immoral. In America, I know I talk a lot about sex, but that's because that's what's driving lots of people's rejection of God. That's what's going on. Most people don't want to be murderers and thieves and liars. But when it comes to controlling their private parts, oh, they simply do not want to do that. 
because <laughs> even with drugs and alcohol, you know, we know that you shouldn't get drunk. Yeah, because you can get a car accident. You can do this, that, that, that. You shouldn't use drugs. Yeah, because it's bad for your body, blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to their sex lives, no, you can't say anything about that. And God, he's going to tell me what to do with my private parts. I don't think so. You know, but that's the point. That's the point I'm making. That uh, That's what's going on. A lot of people simply don't want to submit themselves to God. But back to my initial point about the ramifications of materialism is that it's teaching young people to not trust the Bible. It's teaching young people. And these are our experts. You know, in our society, we just elevate experts like these people can do no wrong. We can never ask questions. They know what they're talking about. They have a bunch of letters behind their name. So we should just listen to any and everything they say without question. That causes so many problems. Because then we don't even question what they say. No person is above questions. No person is above asking questions. And so now we have these people who are dedicated to preserving this idea that there is no God. And they're using science as a weapon to try to discredit God in the eyes of the community, of the society. And if you attempt to question Darwin, you are made out to be a total pariah. I remember once I heard a scientist say he was at a conference in China. I think it was a conference in China. No, this was a conference in America, but it was a Chinese scientist speaking. And someone had quipped, he was questioning Darwin, and someone had kind of made like a kind of uh, kind of sarcastic comment to him. And the guy said something like, in China, we can't question the government, but we can question Darwin. In America, you can question the government, but you can't question Darwin. It's a book called Trapezing Evolution that I think everybody needs to read. If you want to learn about the political agenda behind pushing Darwinism in our society, it is unbelievable. These are some of the political conversations we think about when it comes to creating child, kids' curriculum for school. And this book deals with a particular school district in Pennsylvania where they simply offered a book called People and Pandas to the kids that talked about, that challenged Darwin. And the ACLU were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't question Darwin because they're committed to an atheistic worldview. And so it's really dangerous when we raise up our kids to believe there is no God because then it's just a bunch of chaos. Not to mention, not to mention the social consequences from the chaos that it that it creates, but also the spiritual ramifications because that means you have people on their way to hell. You have people on their way to hell. And remember, hell is real. People deny the existence of hell for some reason. They think that God is nice. So why would he send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. You go there by being in rebellion. And remember, all of us are deserving of hell. That's why we need Jesus, because God is perfectly holy, perfectly just. That means that everything wrong you've ever done in your life, that God, because he's perfectly just, has to hold you accountable for. And so since Jesus exists, Jesus died for your sins. That way you don't have to suffer the penalty. He gives us our gift of eternal life. So you and I don't have to pay that penalty for our sin, but you have to accept that gift of eternal life. Because all of us are deserving of hell. It's not just like I'm so holy because I'm not, I'm terrible. I'm I mean fallen human like everybody else. But if we send our kids to school and they discredit the gospel by discrediting the basic of human anthropology and the very existence of God and turning to the observable universe and then turning to biology, the most inarguable things that we can see to discredit God, we are at a, having a huge uphill battle. And so we're putting our kids spiritually def at a disadvantage 
by allowing these theories, which have consequences, to flow free in society without question. So thank you for tuning in to Solid Food. And make sure you join me again for the next episode, Thursday. And you can check out It's Solid Food on all major podcast platforms. Um, um, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, everything. I'm on there. You can check me out. And also be sure to check out my website at www.ChristinaCaramo.com, on Facebook and YouTube at The Christina Caramo Project, on Instagram at Caramo the Great. And remember to be brave and bold because the gospel of Jesus Christ must be told. Toodles!